Family is not much for uh, vacations. Our typical family vacation is uh, stay home and uh, work around the house. But once in a while, we, uh, we do get away. We enjoy it when it happens. This uh, past summer, we went up to, um, I guess you call that the central coast of uh, California. And uh, we've lived here for 14 years, and we finally went to the Hearst Castle. We'd never been there before. And uh, it was really an amazing place. Those of you who have been here, probably most of you, you walk around, the architecture, the artwork, just the... Uh, Really, the amazing engineering and logistics involved in, in uh, building that place on the top of a relatively steep hill at the time in the middle of essentially nowhere. So it's quite a place to go, and uh, we really enjoyed it. But I think what made it most special when we went there was that we did have a, a docet give us a guided tour of the properties. And then afterwards, they had a, a movie on the making of it and so forth down in the visitor center. And, you know, we, you, as I say, you can get a lot out of just kind of wandering around yourself, but your appreciation of it grows as you know more and more about it. As we were able to uh, go on that guided tour and, and see rooms that are more off-limits to the public if you're on your own and kind of have the docet narrate what went on, some of the famous things that happened in that particular room, that was really, uh, really added to our appreciation and enjoyment of our time there. And... In a small way, that really illustrates our relationship with Jesus Christ. As, uh, as our knowledge of Christ grows, as we come to know more and more about Him, as, as we have a narration of His life that, that goes into depth, which is what the Scripture does, then our appreciation of Him grows with it. As we become more and more familiar with who He is, what He has done, and what He is doing now for us, our love for Him can't help but grow. The better we know Him, the more that we love Him. Open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews 7 tonight. And that's really our objective, is to just get to know Jesus Christ tonight a little bit better. To grow in our appreciation of Him just a little bit more. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 20 through the end of the chapter 28 this evening, but let me just back up. It's been a few weeks since we were in Hebrews 7, and the argumentation of the writer here in Hebrews 7 is a, is a little bit difficult to follow. You have to kind of get on your, uh, your sandals and uh, enter into somewhat of a Jewish mindset to see what he is doing here in this chapter. Just as maybe backing up beyond that to the book as a whole, to remind you, the, uh, the purpose of the book is to, to try to prevent this Jewish Christian community from sliding back away from Christ, back towards Judaism. They are under pressure, they are under persecution, and there is, a, there is a tremendous temptation for them to retain Jesus Christ, but to add back some of the old ways too, to, to reduce the pressure on themselves, to become less distinct from their neighbors and their family members and their culture at large, to, to blend in better. Now, we don't really worry about uh, going back to Judaism, do we? But we can understand what it means to feel the pressure to want to blend in, to want to be liked by our friends and family members and neighbors, to, be, to want to be thought well of. And so there is temptations for us as well to, take, to retain Jesus Christ, but to add other things to it. And the writer of the Hebrews would let them know and let us know that you... To, to add anything to Jesus Christ is to lose Christ himself. Jesus will not share preeminence with anyone. And so systematically through the first seven chapters of this book, he has been pointing out how Jesus Christ is superior to and the fulfillment of all that has gone before him in terms of Judaism. He's shown how in chapter 1 Jesus is higher than the angels. And the Jewish people had great... Uh, respect for the angelic beings, believing that they're the ones who delivered the law to Moses. 
And so he goes on to talk about that. And then he points out how Jesus is superior to Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel himself. He goes on from there to begin to point out how Christ is greater than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood and all that was involved in that, pointing to Melchizedek, that mysterious figure that sort of breezes through the pages of Genesis. He's in and he's out in just a couple of verses, showing up again in in Psalm 110 and then here in the book of Hebrews. And how Melchizedek, that enigmatic figure, serves as a biblical example of Jesus Christ. A new priesthood, not drawn from the tribe of Levi, but drawn from the tribe of Judah. So he is continuing to, to show the fulfillment of Christ for all of these. He will turn the corner here in chapter 8 and following, and he will talk about Christ as the fulfillment of the new covenant. He will point out how in 9 and 10, Jesus Christ is, is the fulfillment of all the sacrificial system and all of the ritual of, of uh, of the mosaic worship is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 11, he will give them repeated examples of those that have walked by faith. Those that have never seen their, their goal actualized with their eyes, but by faith they have looked for a city whose maker and builder is God. And he will point that out to them in chapter 11, and then he will turn in chapter 12, and he will say, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us hold fast. And he will, he will exhort them to, by faith, let go of the past and hang on to Jesus Christ. So here in chapter 7, he is finishing his comparison between Christ and the, and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he does that in uh, <clears throat> verses 11 through 19, which we looked at the last time we were in the, the book in, of Hebrews. And he is pointing out how the Levitical priesthood has passed away. It has gone. Now, we we don't believe this book was written, or we believe it was written, rather, before A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple because there's no place does he make that argument. He doesn't point to the destroyed temple and say, see, the Levitical system is gone, your temple's been wiped out. So we believe the book was written before that. And so there is an ongoing Levitical ritual still. There are the temple sacrifices. But what he's saying is that they're obsolete. The Levitical system is now obsolete. It is done away with. It is passed away with. And he does that in verses 11 through 19 by really pointing to three evidences. And again, this is just a matter of review. Maybe what I ought to do is... No, I don't have time to do that. I'll just take you to it and look quickly. Verses 11 through 14... He's pointing out how the priesthood has passed from Levi to Judah. The Levitical priesthood is gone, and one of the reasons we know it's gone is because the priesthood itself has moved to a whole new tribe, the tribe of Judah. And then in verses 15 through 17, he points out that that's the very promise of Scripture, that God long ago had promised just such a thing would happen. In Psalm 110, written by David a thousand years before this, It had been promised that the priesthood would move from Levi to a new tribe. And then in verses 18 and 19, he kind of wraps it up by pointing out the weaknesses in the old system, in the Levitical system. And the fundamental weakness was that it could not bring someone to completion. It left them in a land of having to do it over again. It was an over and over and over again system never bringing full and complete freedom from their sin. But it was a system of repetitive sacrifice. Thus, it was was a weakened system. He now moves from that argumentation on the negative side, pointing to the, the, the weaknesses of the Levitical system, and he turns the corner before us tonight in verses 20 to 28, which I will read momentarily here, and he talks about the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's pointed out the weaknesses on the Levitical system side. He's now going to point to the superiorities of the new priesthood of Jesus Christ. So here it is. As we look at these verses tonight together, there are three proofs. There are three proofs in verses 20 through 28 of the preeminence of Christ's priesthood. The preeminence of the priesthood of Jesus Christ is demonstrated by three lines of evidence for us this evening. And I want to see this with you. So that our appreciation of Jesus Christ will grow. As simple as that. Just like when we visited the the Hearst Castle 
And the more we learned about it, the more we began to appreciate it. The more we know about Jesus Christ, the more we will appreciate him. And we're going to learn more about him tonight. So beginning in verse 20, let me read the text. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So three, three proofs for us here. The first in verses 20 through 22, and that is that the, the priesthood of Jesus Christ is preeminent because it is formed on a better basis. It is formed on a better basis. What do I mean by that? It comes as a permanent oath versus a temporary appointment. It's really as simple as that. The Levitical priesthood is a temporary appointment. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is a permanent, it comes by permanent oath. Verses 20 through 22. The Levitical priesthood was a fixture of Judaism for 1,400 years. That is an incredibly long period of time. We have no ability, you have to travel to Europe to see anything that stretches back that far. You know, we're, we're the land of America where everything is brand new, you know, and when it's 30 years old, at least on the West Coast, they throw it away. Where I grew up, uh, things are a little bit older on the East Coast. There are some homes that stretch back into the early 1700s, and actually there was a home in the town where I grew up that stretched into the late 1600s. So there's a little more longevity there, but that's still a thousand years short. A thousand years short of, of what the nation of Israel experienced in their Levitical priesthood. It was a fixture for them. It became for most an unquestioning part of their lives. They would learn it from the time of their, you know, that they were born, that this was the way it was. You would go at the appointed times for the appointed feasts and festivals and you would offer the appropriate sacrifices. And that's the way your life was regulated. Literally by the phases of the moon is how you lived your life. And so for 1,400 years, that's what went on. And there was a sense in which they thought it was permanent. They thought it would be forever. They couldn't possibly imagine that this fixture, that this 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 feature that gave stability and meaning to their life could possibly go away. But if they'd have been good students of their own scriptures, they would have known such a thing. They would have known that, uh, that 600 years after the giving of the law and close to 1,000 years after the time or of this time when this book is written, that there was a prophecy that the priesthood would go away. Right? That's what he's talking about here in, in verses 20 through 22. He's saying that they became priests, verse 21, without an oath. That is the Levitical priesthood. The priesthood it had no oath. They were appointed as priests. They were appointed as priests. But he, that is Jesus Christ, with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Psalm 110, from the mouth of their great king David, predicted the, uh, the passing away of the Levitical priesthood. And yet that prophecy remained somewhat obscure for most. They couldn't conceive of that great possibility. And so the writer of the Hebrews, under inspiration, he dredges this 
prophecy up, this Psalm 110, and he begins to apply it over and over again, four times actually. In the text to this point, he applied or he cites this Psalm 110. The fact that God had always foreseen the temporary nature of the Levitical priesthood. Always in the mind of God, it was a temporary feature. It wasn't supposed to be permanent. It wasn't supposed to last forever. And in fact, David is emphatic about this. Look at verse 21. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is, this is not optional. This is, this is not, there's no possibility that God will later say, as if he could, you know, I made a mistake and I'm going to do it differently. God swore and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The old priesthood is gone or going to be gone and a new priest will come. It is God's eternal decision creating an eternal new priesthood. And that's what these people are trying to wrestle with. Notice again in verse 21, he says it's by an oath. Do you see that? It's by an oath. It is the oath that makes the priesthood superior to Aaron's. There is, it is the oath that provides in verse 24 the guarantee of the better covenant. So much the more, he says, verse 22, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. This one, given his priesthood by oath of God, he says, becomes the guarantee of something better. Something better. Now, a guarantee or a guarantor, maybe you put it that way, is one who ensures that certain obligations get performed. When I uh, was in banking and we would be making uh, high-risk loans, we always sought to get a guarantee. We would, have the, we would have the collateral to support the loan, and then we would want a guarantee either from the principals involved with the company or from another corporation who had some financial strength behind them because we wanted somebody to stand in and say, we will make sure that the, that the obligations under this loan agreement get performed. That's what a guarantor does. They make sure it happens. Look again here at verse 22. He's saying Jesus, by virtue of God's unbending, unchanging oath, has become a guarantor. He is guaranteeing a better covenant. Guaranteeing a better covenant. What covenant? What covenant is Jesus giving this guarantee to? Well, the answer is the new covenant. He is guaranteeing the new covenant. For the old covenant is passed away, right? When Jesus died on that cross, the veil of the temple was torn, remember, from top to bottom, revealing for all time access into the Holy of Holies, symbolizing for all to see that the old covenant has been torn, as if it were a, a last will and testament has been torn in half and a new covenant has been created. Jesus is the guarantee of that new covenant. Now, the question is, who receives the guarantee here? Is the guarantee for men that God will fulfill, will fulfill His promises under the new covenant? Is that what the guarantee is all about? Or is it a guarantee to God that men will fulfill their obligations under that new covenant and thus receive the promises? What do you think? Is it men's guarantee of God's Fidelity, or is it God's guarantee of men's fidelity? Or maybe it's both, huh? I think the answer is actually that it's both. And let's, uh, let's do this by looking at a few passages of Scripture and reacquainting ourselves with what's going on. Turn with me to uh, Exodus 24. Exodus 24 and verse 7, it's really a key verse. To kind of set this up. Exodus 24 it comes after Exodus 20. It's my first observation, right? And that's kind of important because Exodus 20 contains the 
Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. That's right, the sort of the, the short version of the law. And here in verse 7, notice what Moses does. It says, He that is Moses took the book of the covenants, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, and I quote, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Close quote. Did they fulfill their commitment? Not even close, did they? Not even close. They had an intention of fulfilling it, but they did not. They did not. And so there is a guarantee that under this new covenant, there will be a fulfillment. Man will fulfill that which he promises under the new covenant. But God will also fulfill that which he's promised as well. And to demonstrate that for you, let me take you to uh, Jeremiah 31. Actually, there are two passages of Scripture that you ought to commit to memory, or at least, at least the chapter number. When, uh, when it comes to the new covenant, when someone mentions new covenant, your mind, you should think about Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Those two should go boing and kind of stick out for you. So you know where to go and to look for the terms of the new covenant. And Jeremiah, it's really easy because it's Jeremiah 31, 31. So you really only have to memorize one number, right? But here it is, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Go with me over to Ezekiel 36, and let's just... Read there and see what additional features of this new covenant Ezekiel, under inspiration, informs us of. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 24. And by the way, a footnote of the footnote, if I can say it that way. I think we're under a footnote right now. But a secondary footnote underneath that has to do with, um, with the land aspect of the new covenant. And uh, verse 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Just stop there for a minute. I said something this morning, and I'm not sure it was the most clear when I said it, and so I want to come back and clarify it, at least for this small group. And that is that the, the, uh, the kingdom that Jesus was talking about to Pilate is certainly a spiritual kingdom, yes. But it also has a physical component to it. And that physical component will be made manifest when the new covenant is finally consummated with Israel. We are beneficiaries of the new covenant by virtue of our union, our faith union with Jesus Christ. But Israel, again, look at verse 24. They will be taken from the nations. When did they go to the nations? Well, they went to the nations in AD 70 when their land was completely devastated. And they've been among the nations ever since. And some would like to, to think that in 1948 they've come out from the nations. I'm not so persuaded that's true, by the way. And the reason I'm not so persuaded is because when I read the rest of the New Covenant here, I don't see any of that happening. I will gather you from the lands and bring you into your own land, 25, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave you your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. The reason I'm not sure that it's begun in 1948 is I don't see any of that stuff happening. Right? I don't see a, a, any kind of longing for the true God in the land of Israel. In fact, just the opposite. I see a, a pushing away of the true God. So back from that footnote to the other footnote that we're on, which is 
The guarantee that Jesus provides of the new covenant, which is it? Is it a guarantee that man will do his part? Or is it a guarantee that God will do his? The answer is yes. It is both. It is both. Notice both here in Ezekiel 36 and over Jeremiah 31 that it it sort of is interwoven with each other. God will fulfill His commitments under the new covenant. He will take out the heart of stone, put a heart of flesh. The law will no longer remain on tablets of stone on the outside, but will be written on the heart by the Spirit. The Spirit of God will dwell within. There will be a desire and a longing to do the things of God and the ability to do so because of the indwelling Spirit. And so the beauty of the new covenant and its superiority to the old is the reality that the people might have had a good intention under the old, but they failed in it. Under the new, beloved, we keep the terms of the covenant. We keep the terms of the covenant, and of course, God keeps His as well. So back to Hebrews. And what is the significance of what he's saying here? What he's saying is that by virtue of God's permanent oath that Jesus Christ will be a priest forever, like under Melchizedek. That he guarantees that the new covenant in all of its fullness will be fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good deal, right? That is a pretty good deal. All that has been promised to us, God will bring to fruition through Jesus Christ. The Spirit within the law written on our heart, the extinguishment of our, of our sin, I will remember your sin no more, the desire to do the things of God, all of this is ours. And it is ours because it has been guaranteed to us through Jesus Christ. So the first proof of the preeminence of the priesthood of Christ is simply that it is formed on a better basis. It is formed on a better basis. It is formed on the basis of an oath not a temporary appointment. Secondly, the priesthood of Jesus Christ results in a better outcome. It results in a better outcome. Verses 23 through 25. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Stop there. What's the point? Well, the point is, Simple, really. The Levitical priesthood required an indefinite succession of priests. You always had to have a new priest. And the reason you did is because the old one died. The old priest would die and therefore you had to have a replacement. And so when, when the father died, the son would become his replacement. And the problem is that the son may not have been as good a priest as dad, right? We can all think of examples from the Old Testament where that's true. Beyond that, the priest that that you've become familiar with, that you're comfortable with, that that understands you, that you have a relationship with, he dies and you get a new one and you've got to start all over again with a new relationship. Beyond that, the new priest in town may turn out to be not such a good priest. He may be lazy. He may be sinful. He may be worthless as a priest, but it doesn't matter. He's the new guy in town. Beyond that, because the priests are sinful, they have to offer sacrifices for themselves before they're even qualified to offer sacrifices for you. Beyond that, The sacrifices themselves don't permanently take care of your problem. They're temporary and they have to be given again and again and again. And that's the way God planned it. Remember, God appointed the Levitical system. It wasn't man's idea, it was God's idea. All along, God planned for this weakened system. This system that was not fully perfect, fully complete Because God all along intended to replace it with an eternal system in Christ. But as you, the people, you're living, or at least these 
recipients were living under the old way. This endless succession of priests. You see it again, verse 23? They exist in greater number because they're prevented by death from continuing. It doesn't mean there's a greater number at, what, at one time. What that means is that there's the greater number is that the, the priest you had yesterday is not the one you're going to have tomorrow. It's a new guy in town. But with Jesus Christ, it's a different, sister, di- different situation. Verse 24, he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. See, Jesus Christ is not susceptible to death, is he? He died and rose again to live forevermore. His priesthood doesn't end. He is, it's not going to be an endless succession of priests with him. It's only one priest. A priest who holds his priesthood in an unending, permanent way. Now the word is translated permanent here. It, it doesn't just mean something that will not change. It means something that cannot change. That cannot change. Unalterable. Inviolable. It would be a couple of ways you could translate it. Something that cannot be changed. The priesthood of Jesus Christ. Verse 24 again. On the other hand, compared to this endless succession of Levitical priests, His He holds forever because His priesthood cannot change. There's no new and improved model. No plan B. There's only Jesus Christ. He is the final high priest. Period. Period. There are no others beyond Him. And you know, beloved, beyond that, there's no unevenness in the quality of His priesthood. Again, think back to that sort of human analogy. Maybe we could try to illustrate it this way. Those of you that have been part of a number of different churches, you can think to yourself on, on how pastors differ, right? There's sort of a, a, a differing quality to pastors, right? Some, uh, some pastors are kind of this way and others are, are, are a different way, right? Their, their personality or their ministry styles or whatever. Some people relate better to the old pastor than they do to the new, or they relate better to the new pastor than to the old guy, right? Maybe, uh, maybe the new pastor um, prays better than the old guy did, right? Or maybe his sermon is more understandable, or just any of those kinds of things. You know, all the time people are talking about, uh, you know, when a pastor leaves, it's really difficult for a church it takes a long time for them to find a new pastor and, and develop a, a, a comfortableness again with him. Their closeness that they've had in their, in their spiritual relationship has been fractured. And so it takes time to develop a, a new relationship. But see, with, with Jesus Christ, there's no change. There's never the new guy in town, right? There's never the uh, recent seminary graduate, Pastor, right? Inexperienced and unsure of himself. It's Jesus Christ. He never changes. He never needs a personal replacement. All of the superiorities and advantages that he brings as your priest go on forever. Whenever someone needs the services of a priest, how often is that? The answer is constantly. We constantly need someone to minister on our behalf before God. So whenever you need the services of a priest, you can always be assured that that your priest is available. He's never out of town. He's never on the phone, too busy to talk. Never uncaring, never preoccupied with someone else. Your high priest is there for you, abiding Forever, because he holds his priesthood permanently, permanently. He will never retire, never die, never be replaced. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
So we have this permanent priest. And beyond that, in verse 25, he says, Hence also, or, or beyond, or, 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 he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is able, he says, to save forever, to save completely, to save eternally. There are no halfway measures with the work of Christ. No temporary covering of our sin, but full and complete pardon and removal. Again, the the system under which they were brought up was a temporary system. You would come and offer your sacrifice, right? And it would cover your sin, but for how long? Until it was time to offer the next one. And so it was an endless process. But here, Jesus is able to save forever, it says. Not in any temporary sense, but it's an ongoing, forever covering of your sin. There are no half-in, half-out Christians. Because there are no half-in, there is no half-in, half-out salvation. Right? Look at those words again. He is able to save forever, eternally, completely, those who draw near to God through him. Furthermore, notice it's he who does the saving. All right? Take a look at that again. And he is the one able to save. Not we don't assist him in the process. We don't save ourselves. It is he who is able to save. And how does he do so? Verse 25, the end of the verse, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It is his constant intercession that enables him to completely save his people. What do I mean by that? Well, certainly there is the, there is the forensic justification that occurs, right? At the moment in which we embrace the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by faith, we are declared by God as justified in the merits of Christ. But there is more to it than that. There is more to it than that. There is, an, there is the ongoing aspect of our salvation that Jesus Christ is very intimately involved in, fulfilling and completing the process that has begun with the forensic declaration of our acquittal before God. And he does that through his intercession. Now this is, a, this is fascinating. This is, this is encouraging to know that you have somebody praying for you always. Always praying for you. Right? Interceding for you always because of his permanent priesthood and his forever life. When I'm asked to pray for people, my, uh, my weakness, my sinfulness, it often interferes. I don't pray as I ought. I, I'm praying and my mind wanders. Or I'm praying early in the morning for someone and I fall asleep in the middle of when I'm praying. Or uh, someone says, will you pray for me? And I say, yeah, I'll pray for you. And if I don't do it right then and I forget to write it down, then sometimes I forget to do it. Or God lays it on my heart to, to pray, and in my own sinfulness, I neglect to do what I know I should do. My intercession is anything but constant, permanent. It is weak. It is sinfully neglectful. But praise God, I'm not Jesus, right? His intercession is just the opposite of that. At his ascension, Jesus Christ entered into the throne room of glory. Amen? Chapter 1 and verse 3 of this very epistle says that he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He is there in the very presence of God, making intercession for us. A never-ending intercession, day by day, moment by moment, year by year, millennium after millennium. He continues to intercede on our behalf. Well, what does he pray for? 
What does he pray for? Well, I think that we can perhaps get a glimpse of what he prays for if we were to turn back to the Gospels. So I'm going to take you back to Luke 22 and verse 32. This is here on the, in the upper room and Simon Peter has said, Lord, if everybody leaves you, don't worry, I won't leave you. And he says, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and that when once you have turned again, you will strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed that Simon Peter would not break. That his faith that was going to be shattered later that evening, and indeed it was. He went out, fled from the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, and and he wept, right, over his, his failure to stand for Christ. Satan was very much sifting him, seeking to break him. But Jesus prayed for him that his faith would not break, would not fail. I believe Jesus is praying right now for me, for you as well, along similar lines, that your faith would not fail, that your commitment to Jesus Christ would not break. Beloved, we don't stand by our own strength, right? Our own ability to cling to Christ, we'd all be in trouble. It's His ability to cling to us that ensures it. And it is in His intercessory prayer on our behalf. Beyond that, I think if we were to go to, to John 17, we would get a further glimpse of the kinds of things that Jesus prays for. I've worked through John 17 at another time, so I'm not going to do it again now. So maybe I'll just say, think about it. Reread it yourself and think about it. That I, I, I believe that Jesus is praying along similar lines even now for you. Praying for your unity. Praying that the, that the Word of God would be the sanctifying tool in your life. Beyond that, the Scripture tells us that Jesus acts as our advocate or our defense attorney when Satan accuses us. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, it speaks of, of Satan as the accuser of the brethren. And so Jesus Christ is there acting as our advocate, praying, speaking to the Father on our behalf. When, when Satan reminds God of how worthless we are, he, Jesus intercedes with the Father reminding him of the fact that that sin has been extinguished in his own death. Third, Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 8 that, that Jesus takes our prayers, our feeble, mumbling, unintelligible prayers, and he cleans them up, and he purifies them, and he directs the arrow back on target, and he voices those prayers to the Father for us. These are the kind of intercessory ministries that the very Son of God is now actively involved in, in the presence of God the Father on our behalf. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. He's because he's always living and making intercession for us. We have this advocate with the Father. And that's why the priesthood of Jesus Christ is so superior. It's because it's got a better outcome. A better outcome. And that leads us to the third point, and that is that it's based on a better priest. It's just based on a better priest. As simple as that. The priesthood of Jesus, he's more fit to be our priest than any that have gone before. And the writer demonstrates it here simply by looking at both his character and his work. Very quickly, he mentions six character aspects in verses 26 and 27. Very simply, he says, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, one who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. 
with no, no sin in his life that needs daily covering. These are the characteristics, or the character qualities of our high priest, right? He's holy. That means he, he acts always out of regard for God's requirements. He's always doing the right thing. He's innocent. There's no malice, no badness of any sort in him. He's undefiled. That means that evil can't attach itself to him. Not only does he not do evil, but, he's, but evil can't attach to him. You and I, we're, we're like a magnet drawn through a pile of iron filings, right? You know, we just kind of walk through life and stuff clinging to us all the time, right? Crud. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is like he's coated in Teflon. It, it's just nothing sticking to him. He's undefiled. I mean, think about the Levitical priesthood. Think about all those elaborate rituals you read about early, uh, early this year when we were reading in Leviticus, right? I mean, all the stuff they had to do, you know, for their garments. You remember all that? They just sprinkle all that blood all over them. Then they have to take all these baths. They have to wash themselves all the time before they can go into the presence of God. That's because they're defiled. And so they have to wash their bodies and they have to wash their clothes and they have to offer a sacrifice to cover their sin, but they can never cleanse the dirt on their soul. Jesus Christ is undefiled. There's no dirt in his soul at all. He's separated from sinners, it says. The idea here is it's just it's speaking about his incarnation. His incarnation. He, although he was fully human, he was and he remains always separate from sinners. He's not like us in that sense. He doesn't have that sin nature residing within him. Jesus could minister to the prostitutes, the sinners, without being, without ever partaking in their sin, without ever being defiled by it. Beyond that now, it says he's exalted above the heavens, verse 26, right? I mean, he's just talking about his, his place of ascendancy. He's above all the heavens. That's the point. This high priest is no longer on earth. He's way up there. Above all else. And finally, verse 27, there's no daily need to cover his sin. Every time the high priest would get ready to go into the Holy of Holies, every September, October, right? He would go in once a year, Yom Kippur, for the Day of Atonement. But before he could enter in to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people, he had to offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself. And the point that the writer is making here is not that the high priest offered a daily sacrifice. That's not the point. The point is that, is that he had to offer a sacrifice every time he went in. But Jesus Christ, he's there for us always, day in and day out, and he never offers a sacrifice. He never has to cleanse his own case, his own, cleanse, the sin, cleanse his sin before he can minister, for he has none. And that really leads us into his work. The work that suits him as a high priest makes him a better high priest. And, and that is that the, the offering that he made, verse 27, he did once and for all. Once and for all. Again, the old system, repetitive sacrifice over, over, and over, and over again. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ once and for all. He offered up himself. Verse 28, the writer is drawing this all to a close now. It's, it's, he's summarizing the argument that he's made. Why Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. He says, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, signifying that this new priesthood replaces the old one under the law. This new one by an oath appoints a son. And when in the Hebrew mindset, when they talk about a son, sonship equals one with. That's what's being communicated. It appoints one with God. That is God himself. Is our priest. 
made perfect forever. That is, his work has been made perfect or complete forever. The writer's going to turn a corner here now as we begin in chapter 8, next time we get together. You can see it in verse 1, right? He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. Okay? He's been building his arguments. He's going to turn the corner and he's going to make his main point. But for now, we've, we've tried to follow his train of thought. We've, we've labored along with him as he's built his case like a good lawyer, one argument upon another. And in the process... I trust that we have grown in our appreciation and thankfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ for who He is and what He's done. Like our tour of the Hearst Castle this past summer, the more we found out about it, the more we came to appreciate it. The more that you know about Jesus Christ, the more you will appreciate what He has done and is continually doing for you. 24-7. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's such comfort in knowing that you never sleep, that you're never preoccupied, that you are attentively ministering on behalf of your people in the presence of the throne room of God the Father. That the very prayers we make, Lord Jesus, as jumbled and tangled as they frequently are in both our own minds and as they come out through our mouths, you sort it all out. That you are petitioning on behalf of the Father for us, that our faith would be strong and would not fail, that the attack of the evil one upon us would not succeed. That we would be brought to a a full measure of our salvation, That we would not remain as babes in Christ, bound under sin. All these ministries and more, Lord Jesus, you are conducting on our behalf constantly. We thank you for that. We thank you for loving us with that kind of love. We pray that as we continue to grow and understand who you are, that that our worship of you would grow in maturity as well. That our hearts would sing forth out of the overflow and the abundance that resides within. Thank you for the time together this evening and for the encouragement and instruction from the Scriptures. May you go with us now in the week before us, strengthening us to walk as beacons of light in a dark world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.